yard sales, pulse bearing and getting clear of burnout. I don't know if that's an intriguing title or not, but Spencer Allen sure is one intriguing dude. Welcome to the Noobsphere Podcast. My name is Isaac, aka Shrek. I host the Noobsphere Podcast. It's interviews with frothing legends and characters from all over the world. Today, we are headed to California to chat with Spencer Allen. He has been a dude I've followed along on Instagram and just really enjoyed his journey. He is a thoughtful dude. And he really has taken to the spearfishing lifestyle and embraced it for all that it brings. And today's conversation is very wide-ranging, very interesting, and I really, really enjoyed it. I guess today's conversation is also part of promoting 99 Spare Recipes, which Spencer has contributed to uh, in a lot of ways. And I really encourage you to check that out today. You can go to noobspare.com forward slash 99 recipes to be redirected to the Kickstarter campaign, or you can go direct to Kickstarter and type in 99 Spare Recipes and get into it. But... Um, Let's. I, I don't want to muck around too much. I want to get into this interview with Spencer, but let's have a listen to this voice message from Ben Honky. Hey, Noobers. My name is Ben Honky from Honky Outdoors, and I submitted several recipes to 99 Spiro recipes. I really like the simplicity of the 99 Spiro recipe concept. Nothing too crazy, just good, easy recipes. I was particularly pumped to send in my smoked fish pate recipe and my other controversial, undesirable trash fish recipes. 99 Spiro recipes will change our spearfishing culture for the better by giving us an amazing book of simple, quick meals that will challenge us to try new things and utilize more of our catch. I think 99 Spiro recipes will be the best resource in every Spiro's house. Go to noobspiro.com forward slash 99 recipes and get yourself a copy. If you would like to check out my smoked fish pate recipe, go to noobspiro.com forward slash 99 recipes and get yourself a copy now. Cheers. Thanks, Ben, for your message and thanks for getting involved in 99 Spare Recipes. I don't want to muck around too long. Spencer is a, is a super interesting dude. We talk into pulse bears and getting burned, basically, <laughs> and getting absolutely blasted with yard sales on board kayaks. It's a great interview. Here we go. Spencer Allen. Sometimes in life you have those moments where you think, I've made it. Generally they get crushed fairly quickly, but today I knew I had made it with the Noobsphere podcast when I got an email from Manscaped. They make the best below the waist uh, trimming gear you can imagine. They sent me a care package, I got the Lawnmower 4.0 as well as a pair of boxes and shit, and uh, absolutely stoked to welcome Manscaped to the Noobsphere podcast. So support for today's episode comes from them. Um, did I tell you that the Lawnmower 4.0 allow you to customize your trim through additional guard lengths with sizes from one to four? Also, wireless charging, the new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help save battery length lasting longer. I've used mine two, twice already, sitting in the drawer. Love it, super lightweight, pull it out. Bob's your uncle, you're all done in a couple of minutes. Tidy as, and uh, and I haven't charged it yet. So, and it's robust, light, I mean, what, what more do you need? Anyway, I want you to get hold of it. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NoobSpiro, one word, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code NoobSpiro, one word. Unlock your confidence. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. In 2014, Neptonics combined forces with Spearfishing Solutions and relocated its headquarters to Tampa, Florida. 
They now sell to over 60 countries worldwide with brick and mortar stores in Florida, Santa Cruz and Long Beach, California. Take advantage of the Noob 10 discount code to save 10% on all orders. Shop with Neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works. Equipment you can rely on. Neptonics is the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing essentials. Free shipping on all orders over $99 in the USA. Use the code Noob10 to save 10% off your order as well. Visit Neptonics.com, save 10% with the code Noob10. Adreno, stocks equipment for noobers. Your gear needs for all things freediving and spearfishing. The Adreno spearfishing team froth on helping customers learn about the latest in equipment, local diving, upcoming trips and events for Spiros of all levels of experience. Visit them in store, everywhere, and chat to one of their friendly team members. Take advantage of the Noob Spiro discount code. Save $20 on every purchase over $200. That's right, you can now use the code Noob Spiro, one word, in store or online at adreno.com.au or visit one of their stores. Talk to one of the stoked frothing legends in one of their Adreno spearfishing stores today. Again, visit them at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpiro. Welcome to the NoobSpiro podcast. Uh, it's fantastic to have you along on the journey. I remember getting an email from you like a couple of years ago now, and we just, um, obviously NoobSpiro podcast paid a little bit of an influence on getting started, but um, how long have you been spearing? Get us, get us every, get everyone up to date with who Spencer Allen is and how this journey started for you, man. Yeah, so it's great to be here. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the show. Um, so I've only been spearing for about two years this month. Um, but I've been chasing fish since I could walk. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing on a farm in Alabama. I was really lucky to have a dad who took me fishing at a young age, had me in a tree stand at 12 with my own rifle. I hunted deer, squirrel, duck, geese, dove, uh, lakes and ponds, catfish, bass, brim, and trout. Like, I grew up in the Gulf, like saltwater fishing for like amberjack and grouper and snapper. Um, let's see, like my sophomore year of high school, my house burned completely to the ground and all my gear got destroyed. And I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, I never got around to replacing most of my hunting gear. And I go fishing here and there, but like I moved to LA after high school and that was like 15 years ago. I didn't touch it for like 10 years. Mm. and. I don't know. I just, um, I think somewhat recently, uh, like about five years ago, my dad was living in Santa Barbara. I was down here in LA yep. and he told me he had an ocean kayak in storage and that he'd been trying to go fishing. And he told me if I wanted to try it out, I could go get it. And so like, basically I just ended up getting this kayak and like dragging it down to like big surf. I won't say what beach people don't like Southern California people that don't like you talking about specific beaches, but yeah. I dragged this kayak down to the ocean in like a big surf spot and basically like got my ass handed to me, like absolutely destroyed, like <laughs> just <laughs> completely covered in rash, like did not make it out. Okay. And I was so <laughs> upset. Like, I remember I was like dragging this kayak up the stairs at the beach and some asshole was laughing at me. And I was like soaking wet. I was having a horrible day. I had like a hundred pounds of gear that I'm like, tr like trying to drag up the stairs. And I called him up as I'm driving back to Santa Barbara. And I'm like, fuck this. Like, I'm, I, you can have the kayak. I'm putting it back in storage. And I'm not doing this anymore. Yep. Um, and I slept on it. And I woke up the next day. And 
I drove back up and got the kayak again. I was like, no, I, I'm, I'm not ready to quit yet. I'm going to do this again. <laughs> and I found this uh, kayak fishing forum uh, locally where like, I, I wrote out this like nice note. I was like, hey, guys, like if anybody wants to take me out and show me what's going on, like I'm way too green at this, but I really want to learn. Like I'll buy you beer. I'll buy you lunch. Like let's nice. let's have a day of it. That's a good sales pitch. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think that kind of harkens to a lot of like what I've experienced in spearfishing is like a lot of dudes will pop up on the forum and just be like, hey, who wants to go spearfishing at this location tonight? And like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big ask to expect yeah, somebody to just go jump in the water with a stranger when you don't know the first thing about them. Yeah, 100%. I've got a few questions. I, I want to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love it. I love the. I love the passion. Um, did Did you learn the term yard sale before or after your first mishap? Because I love oh. this term. I've only just been introduced to it, and um, I freaking love it. <laughs> so I learned it as I was going out. It's actually it's something you can be driving along PCH and see pretty regularly because these are like famous surf breaks, mm. and they're pretty dangerous. Like. Actually, one of the first times I tried to take the kayak at, I had my dad's, like, it was a, a Calstar rod with a pretty decent reel on it. Ooh. And I just, like, bungeed it to the side of the kayak. And, of course, the bungee popped and it yeah. went, like, out into the surf. Some dude was nice enough to actually, like, pick it up oh, and, sweet. like, call me about it. But, like, oh, yeah, I've... I've had many yard sales. It sucks. It's, <laughs> it's kind of brutal. Everyone likes watching those YouTube videos, and I can relate to that dude standing on the clifftop like laughing your ass off. But um, having taken kayaks out through the surf myself, I can 100% understand exactly what's happened. It's, it's, a, it's a bloody hard skill. Well, I think what's, what's so hard about getting the kayak through the surf mm. is – most people don't realize like how uh, a set works. Like mm. if you're not a surfer, if you haven't spent time there and it's like this, the interval is almost about as long as your attention span. So you'll be sitting there and you'll be like, I guess these waves are just going to keep coming. And if you stand there for like a good minute, three minutes, five minutes, you'll start to get a sense of like, Oh, there's this lull mm. where you can just paddle out plain as day. Nothing doesn't matter how big the surf is. If the interval's okay, you can kind of just sneak right out. Yep. Um, and that's what actually I, I, the first trip I was able to go on with some guys who knew what they were doing. I just like followed them right out. Like I stood there and watched them. So did your, your sales pitch to offering them beer, did that work? Did you get a fish on the hook for that? Oh, so, uh, these guys, um, what's the name of that? What's the name of that kayak form, by the way? Uh, they're called big waters edge. Um, they're still around. They're very like San Diego centric now, but like the rest of Southern California, there's still a good bit on there. Um, it's a nice group of guys. Um, I mean, all forums kind of have that whole thing where they're big and then they're not. (laughs) (laughs) So I went out with these guys and we basically went fishing deep for like rockfish and like 150, 200 feet of water and had a good day of rock fishing paddled about like five miles out with these guys. I would have never gone that deep if they weren't showing me where to go. And I came back in trolling a mackerel and uh, I I paused for a minute and my line started screaming and I ended up hooking a 41 inch halibut. Wow. My first day out fishing with these guys, like none of them were troll style fishermen. And they were just like, what the hell did you just do? Like I got it on the stringer, lost count of the number of times I stabbed it in the face and brought home like, enough meat to feed my friends for like six months. It was amazing. Wow. It was like 
that was what kind of hooked me on it. Like brought me back in was like, holy shit. Like this is, I can't believe I haven't been doing this. This was what I grew up doing. I yeah. have to keep doing this. So your, your passion sort of came out of the East coast. Like, Oh, so the golf's kind of, yeah. And then, and, but, and I mean, so those lessons learned in your early days out sort of in the golf there, did they translate to Southern California? Because I don't know. Like, it seems like a completely different fishery, completely different culture and attitudes. Like, um, I guess fishing I, is fishing wherever you are. Isn't I it? think there's a sensibility. Um, there's a couple of things, right? Like, so growing up on a farm, like I remember my uncle's pond down the road. Um, it like turned over is what it's called. Like basically the fertilizer from the hills keeps going down into it. Okay. The algae blooms and there's no oxygen and all the fish start to die. So what they do is they drain it and bring a tractor in and scoop all the silt off the bottom. But before we did, we were raising catfish. So we would like go out in like Grundon style waders with like big gloves and just pick up these like seven pound catfish, just throwing them in the bucket. So like if there's one person who knows how to like grab a fish and handle it once you've got it on the spear and spike it and take care of it, like that's just second nature to me. Yeah, I've been sweet. doing that since I could walk. Like, I think there's also a sensibility to outdoorsmen. Like it's, uh, it's the getting up at three 30 in the morning to get to the coast so that you've launched an hour before first light so mm. that you hit the tide at that exact moment. Mm. Whereas like, I, I got nothing against guys who want to jump in the water at 10 AM, but like, my fondest memories were my dad grabbing me out of bed at like three thirty in the morning to go hit a tree stand. Like I see, just, I, I, don't know. See, I see that passion, and uh, I watch one of your YouTube videos. Um, so it's Spencer Allen for people that want to go and watch it. I've been uh, doing catching up on madly on a bit of research this morning, but I had previously watched a few of your videos. But this morning, one of them is like a really good bit of time lapse footage, and you pull up on the side of the road way before first light, and then you're launching as soon as there's enough light to get out, and then. Um, you know, there was dolphins and, and, and sea lions and then the sunrise. And it's just a an amazing bit of footage. And I think it's like, a, I think in some of the notes you sent me, like you talk about fishing being almost like a cult, you know, like we're, we're the secret society. We experience these things in the water that no one else does. And I think sometimes we get lost in the spearfishing world and we forget that really fishermen of any stripe share the same sort of thing we we get up way before everyone else does we enjoy the natural world like no one else does and then we we take it a step further almost so and we get in and underneath and a lot of people a lot of fishermen and fisherwomen are uncomfortable with that idea talk about sort of if you can how you how you went from being on on the surface and catching fish to entering underneath and sort of what that journey was like Oh, yeah. So I'd been fishing for a couple of years. And I also like, I think the other thing I left behind when I left high school was like, I played all kinds of sports. And I was in really good shape in high school. And then, you know, my 30s rolled around. And I was like, I'm getting kind of a gut. This sucks. Like, <laughs> I can't relate I, to that at all. Like, I'm always in, pres <laughs> I'm always in pristine yeah. condition. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do. And I really enjoyed the water. So I picked up lap swimming. I'd yeah. never done it before. And Somewhere between lap swimming and being on the beach kayak fishing a lot, I would regularly see dudes in wetsuits going out with spears and thinking, like, these people are crazy. Like, I'd hear the stories about, like, blackouts and all this stuff. And all I remember thinking was, like, these people are nuts. And I kept saying that to myself. 
And like one day I just like yelped a spearfishing instructor or like a free dive instructor who happened to have like a spearfishing class. Okay. Uh, his name's Lance Lee Davis. He's actually amazing. He's a national record holder. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met in the sport. Okay. Um, he called me after I sent him an email and uh, we spent like an hour on the phone. And as soon as I hung up, I was like signing up, putting down the deposit, jumping into his class. Yeah. Uh, it was really, really fun. Um, there's a couple of interesting points I, w- I want to talk about. Like so, um, spearfishing clubs as opposed to going out and doing courses are a really interesting conversation. Like spearfishing clubs are fantastic. I think um, particularly if they have some sort of program for new guys, but there's something sometimes about just like this guy, it sounds like Lance Lee Davis, I think you said his name was mm-hmm. like yeah. running courses is like they do it because they're, they're passionate about it. But sometimes it's almost like we have this attitude like, oh, we're, that's trying to sell me something. It's like sometimes there's a there's an entry barrier there because obviously there's a cost associated with doing a course. Yeah. Do you feel like that, that gave you skills and confidence and knowledge to really have a good crack at it? Did you do the course really before you went out and had a go at spearing for yourself? or I go back and forth on this. I will say I had a crack at it in the sense that like, I remember a couple of years prior, I'd taken a trip to Belize with like my boss and some friends. And we were on this really shallow reef with like nurse sharks and big eagle rays. And like, it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And I just bought like a little Olympus TG5, like a little point and shoot that actually takes raw photos. Okay. And I was diving down to get photos from a good underneath angle. And I was like, man, my ears really hurt. Like I was only diving in like one to three meters of water, but like I was already trying it out, um, but not really knowing it. It was mostly just snorkeling, but no, I had never tried it before his class. And I think the thing that gave me confidence was he was like, you've been lap swimming for like two years. You're building up CO2 tolerance. Like you have, he's like, I'm comfortable that you'll get your cert from this class basically. Um, You make a really good point though, because I left his course and was kind of, I, I was fumbling around in the dark trying to find buddies for a little while. Yeah. And I also, I didn't have the best experience trying to find a club. Um, I felt like going into the club that I went to locally, it, it, it almost felt like there was a bit of gatekeeping at play. Not oh. like these people didn't want anybody to join the sport, but I felt like the prevailing attitude from a lot of old school guys in the sport is kind of like, it was hard for us coming up. So it should be hard for you. I don't even think they're consciously saying that, yeah. but I feel like it's this idea of like, you know, you go and join a frat house and you're going to get hazed because those guys were hazed. And I feel like that's a, a pretty common experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some generally clubs run on a few exceptional people and it's very personality based. And a lot of these people are just giving of their time and their energy. And sometimes almost like when I, when I was starting, I would have paid someone to go out and do a course with them I, because I wanted to get to a level of like competence where other people, I wasn't going to be a, an extreme burden to them because yeah. I think like, you know, yourself now, like, it's like, you don't just go out spearfishing to, you know, like there's, there's reasons why you do it, like for recovery, for personal satisfaction, for exercise. As soon as you add in the burden of taking someone else out with you and I, I like, I like to do it, but only occasionally. And I think everyone's in the same boat. It's like, so sometimes when you're starting, it's like you feel the sense of responsibility to get yourself to a level of competence so you're no longer a burden on people that do go out with you. And it's like, I feel more, 
I felt I would have felt more comfortable just paying someone to do that rather than, you know, imp- putting that imposition on someone else. Is that kind of where you were coming from as well with it or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I'm the kind of person if I decide I want to do something, I'm just going to go do it. Yeah, and I'm the same. <laughs> I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have the budget that like it wasn't a big deal for me to go pay for a class. And it was also really nice that he had a course specifically designed for Spiros like the third day you get on his little Zodiac and like ride out of Kings Harbor and Redondo into Palos Verdes and go spearing with him, like a guided trip, basically. Ah, sick. And, you know, like someone like that, it's almost a little intimidating to go out with someone that good because I feel like you you almost see how good you're not. Yeah. But it it totally locked me in. I realized immediately like, oh, I'm buying the gear. I'm I'm getting into this sport. This is for me. Yeah, sick. And so you talked about some transferable skills. Like obviously you'd been you'd been wrestling catfish before, so you knew how to handle fish. And uh, the kayak fishing gave you access, like immediate access to even some of the the offshore reefs and stuff. And then you'd paid for this course, so you must have had or developed a, a relative level of competence and confidence in the water. Um, obviously, you were still probably pretty fresh, but from there, like how did you start to find buddies and get out and start exploring? Yeah. So I think I started poking around on like the local Facebook group. I think there's like California spearfishing and a couple other things like that. And I definitely found a couple of buddies that I started going out with. And I'll be honest, like I I think my biggest frustration. So I went down to like the spearfishing shop and bought a little 110 gun. It was like a Epsilon that was on like Black Friday sale. And um, it's a great gun. But I think what ended up happening was I buddied up with a bunch of people who all had the same singular focus. And I would almost liken it to deer hunting, like going out for white sea bass is very much this like quiet stalk hunting, putting yourself in the water and waiting for this big fish to swim by. And they're like, I mean, you've had plenty of people on your show talk about them. There's like, they're called the gray ghosts. Like people are always looking for them. And some people will spend like 10 years not finding them. And I had a lot of dive buddies who were very like tunnel vision focused on that. Yeah. So like the water's kind of temperamental, you know, the visibility is not always great. It was a time of year where the visibility was especially bad. And we would go get in the water with just a spear gun and a stringer and everything else and jump in the water. Like I can barely see my hand in front of my face. We're going to sit here for half an hour and then give up and go home. Wow. And I had that experience for a few months before I made one dive buddy. Uh, her name's Alyssa. She's a really good friend of mine. And she uh, she had a little pranger pole spear. Mm. Um, and we jumped in the water and I had this big gun and I'm watching her just like tagging, like filling up her stringer with like perch and calico. And I remember I took like two shots on the reef that day and it was my first time shooting the gun. And I was like dealing with this double wrapped gun it was like kind of hard to load and kind mm. of unwieldy. And I just wasn't having any fun with it at all. And she was like, here, just like put the gun on my float, take my pole spear and like shot my first little perch. And I was like off to the races. I like left that dive site with like my wetsuit in the back of the truck and went and bought a pole spear that day. Nice. Nice. So how long was the pole spear and like what, what was the first one you bought? Was it good? Oh yeah, it's a great pole spear. I still own it to this day, and I kind of upgraded it as I went. Um, it's a it was an Epsilon. I don't know if they still sell them at Spear America, but 
basically it was a like one of those where you could break it down to six feet or I think up to eight feet. Yep. And it had a little flopper on the tip. Um, I have since actually put a slip tip on it because okay. I don't like worrying about if the flopper is going to engage. Yep. Uh, I bought like a little headhunter tip for it. And it's amazing. It's a rigid aluminum pole that like I'm going to use it until it dies. And you know, the slip tip, like um, how long is the – I'm taking it's like a braided sort of like a stainless steel line between that and the yeah, flopper? Yeah, yeah. I think it started with a cable and we – okay. I, I didn't really like the idea of a cable, so I like clipped it and put that – um like that braided, almost like Chinese finger trap. Okay. And how long is that sort of slip tip off? So it's like a, it's like a drop barb sort of setup. Like, yeah, I think it's like a, a 12 inch injector okay. with, uh, with the slip tip on it. And does it fall off? Like when you just like, uh, no, I, um, I use a couple of, uh, I'll always save. This is actually really cool. I learned from a friend. You can, uh, take the old, like, uh, surgical tubing yep. and cut them into little bits and use those as your O-rings to hold it in place. Ah, okay, yeah. cool. And, um, how long, how much use do you get out of each one? Um, the, the band itself? Nah, the little surgical tube or whatever that slips oh, off. Oh, probably yeah. every three or four dives. Like, I'll right. even, like, roll a couple extras on there just in case one pops. But, ah, yeah, they seem to last pretty well. Yeah, cool. All right. And so that's changed your – so you don't need a big spear gun. like. Yeah, so the second day I went out with my buddy, um, she was, like – she had an ab bar, an abalone bar, and she was prying scallops off the rocks. And – um I was just like, I feel like when you go for scallops, you have to spend like an hour just trying to spot your first one. And then you can't unsee it and they're everywhere. Yeah. And you get like three um, or four in a run. But she started trying to like show me exactly where to look and how to find them. And when I popped my first scallop, it was just like, it kind of opened up a new world for me because all of a sudden I felt like I had options. Like I wasn't just wandering around with a gun staring at a blank green void because honestly that gets kind of boring for me yeah. like I'll, I'll go hunt big game when they're in season and that's a thing to do but like i don't know I, there's just i like having options there's a lot of people it seems in california that were monotask is like i think um you know you've got the white sea bass hunting that i've heard a bit about then you, you had the guys that, that chased the abalone and they were pretty much yeah. just abalone and then you've got bug diving which is lobster diving and then people just it seems to be like you've got these these groups and they're extremely monotasked. And um, I think it's a very effective form of hunting when you're doing it at the right time with the right people in the right place. But it seems to be quite difficult to learn. And then if you're just getting started and you're wanting to sort of experience all that the ocean has to offer, it seems like maybe it's not a full experience for some people. Is that sort of your what you're saying as well? Yeah, I think having a certain amount of like – setting reasonable expectations and setting like reasonable goals, mm. like having a small win on that first day was something else because also, you know, there's, um, there's a really, there's a really delicious fish that swims around on the reefs in Southern California called a sheephead. Mm. Um, they're like a wrasse. Um, yeah, I try not to shoot too many of them, but I think they're one of the best eating fish I've ever had. They they almost like raw. They're kind of like a Thai, like a sea brim, um, okay. like a very popular like sushi fish. And um, they they eat crustaceans off the reef. So one of the first things I learned, this was actually the first time I felt like, oh, I'm actually learning to like target and stalk a fish. Mm. Was if you go down and you're in any way like moving aggressively, they get off the rock and head out. But if you head down and you start just prying away on the rocks, like pulling scallops off, 
they just come sneaking in. They're like, what are you, what are you doing? I'm going to eat that. Like they almost get aggressive yeah. if you do it right. And the first one I shot, this was where I was like really starting to get into it was I brought my pole spear down and I like loaded it in my hand and had it like this. And I was just like pretending to chip away at the rock, just waiting to see what would happen, waiting to see what happened. And this sheephead came right over my shoulder and I just shot it like point blank in the face. Like didn't have to aim, didn't have to chase it, didn't have to do anything. I was like, oh, this is, this is money. I am sold. Like, <laughs> I think those fish are in all sorts of different parts of the world. We have some similar stuff here, like black spot tusk fish are sort of like a comparable type of species that we have here. And um, I can relate to what you're saying. It's like they're opportunistic and they, they, they've got these big teeth that – are well well sort of um set up you can almost tell from their you know their physical characteristics how they sort of feed and you can exploit some of those those different things so that's cool how big was that fish and um oh god it was barely legal i'm not gonna lie it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like some giant trophy fish it was yep. barely legal for sure i mean but that's how you start out you shoot dance yeah. like <laughs> and they and they like it doesn't reduce the level of stoke does it no not for me i mean also i I look at this as a very social sport. Like I'm a buddy diver. I'm pretty safety conscious, but one of the coolest things about my buddy, Alyssa is like, she might as well have, that might as well have been her first fish. She was going off. She was like, Holy shit, you shot a fish. That's awesome. Yep. Like having a buddy in the water like that just makes it all the more special. Like that's how I am with my fishing friends too, is like when they catch that amazing fish, like we have a friendly competition, but I'm just as excited for them as I would be for myself. I watched a couple of your videos with her this morning, the dive camp, October, 2020, like there's a part one and part two there. I, I remember watching it. I think um, the soundscape on those videos, by the way, is absolutely phenomenal. Like the, the, there's, you capture like some really cool shots, like big holes, like riddled with lobster. And uh, I remember one part of that actually, and you talk about like spearfishing, sometimes it's built to be like this sport where we get in, and pe people almost sell it to you like you're a shark. And I remember saying you felt more like an otter. Can you talk to that? Um, so, yeah, I, I was talking about that where, like, these guys that I first started diving with would be very Spartan with their gear, like a spear gun and just a stringer, and that's it. Mm. So one of the first things I read about, um, I really wanted to understand, like, what my options were, especially coming from, like, having a kayak with three fishing rods and my tackle and my lunch and like making an excursion of it. Um, I started looking into like how I could, cause I heard about banks boards um, and I didn't want to spend $500 on a piece of plastic. Um, I think they're cool, but I don't want to spend 500 bucks on a piece of plastic mm. like that. And I converted a little boogie board, uh, like put a net on it and saw some designs online. And um, all of a sudden I had this gear set up where I had options. Like I had yeah. my, my game bag, I had my pry bar, I could like hook my gun or my pole spear onto it. I could just kind of like clip it off in the kelp and try whatever I wanted. And if I wasn't having fun with it, I could go try something else. And yeah. I think there's something really cool about that where like, cause I also feel like sometimes you get out in the water and everybody's rushing to go do something. Like your buddy really wants to go find that fish. And maybe you're not like slowing down enough to like breathe up and take your time and see just how relaxed you can get like you would on the line and i don't know having that board out there and clipping off in the kelp just like all of a sudden it just feels a little bit more relaxed a little bit more like you can just hang out stay there all afternoon if you want to a lot of spearfishing is like decision making isn't it it's like you know like i, I get it too it's like 
you know, when you get out and uh, like you can get into a scarcity mindset, it's like where you you don't spend enough time on your surface interval. It's like you feel like you've got to get back down again to maximise your opportunities and then – but if you just spend that extra minute on the surface, like you're making better decisions. If Sometimes if like you've done three drops on a reef and you're like, you know, like this reef is not on today, like I'm going to move. But as soon as you pull yourself back from like the urgency of the moment and you just sit back and you think, okay, what's the best decision – what's the best thing I can do with this opportunity, you know, this time window that I've got in front of me to do with the dive opportunity I have? You find yourself like, A, catching like more fish or, or you know, foraging, getting more, you know, whatever it is you want for the day, whether it's scallops or lobster or whatever. I, I, I feel like if you can do that, like that's part of like a bit of the maturity curve of like good spearfishing. But if you haven't been out for a while, sometimes it's hard to, to break from that sense of urgency that you put on yourself. Is that something that you experience? Absolutely. I mean, I also feel like there's like a diminishing return. I think everybody's had this, like you get to the end of the day and you're starting to feel tired and every dive is feeling worse than the last. And you're just like, you're almost like yelling into your mask at a certain point. Like you're just starting to get angry at how tired you are of like holding off CO2. Um, yeah, I feel like the more I've like forced myself to slow down, like sometimes I'll get to the reef and people are doing drops and I'll be like, I'm just going to like breathe up for five minutes. Like I'm going to set an alarm on my watch and force myself to just sit here and stare at the reef for a minute because why the hell not? Mm. Um, it makes all the difference because I do have this feeling that like in spirit fishing, I look at it kind of like establishing a certain amount of fundamentals and then experimenting with different ideas has been something that I think about a lot. Yeah. Like a really good example is like my buddy and I got to this reef uh, pretty early on. And I think a calico bass is a pretty hard fish to hunt with a pole spear. I think that's actually like one of the better challenges I've found is like actually getting close enough to a calico to take a shot with a pole spear. Yeah. And what I noticed was like, they don't hole up like other fish do a hundred percent if they don't really get spooked. And I also noticed that they don't really take to chasing. Like you can't stalk one straight up. They'll just cruise right off the reef. Mm -hmm. um, but what I did was I had my buddy start on one side of this boulder. And I specifically said to him, I was like, something I want to try today. I want to see like in deer hunting, we used to flush deer, right? Like you like yep. have two people start walking at two ends of the woods. You'd know where your buddy is. So you don't shoot him but you would basically set up and wait for the deer to run by. And I had him do drops all the way around the boulder coming around clockwise. And I came up counterclockwise and I saw, like I could see from the surface where the calico were running when he would do his drops. And I came around this corner and this, it was probably like a four, maybe five pound calico that was like hugging the rock, just acting like I didn't see it. And I remember coming around and doing the same thing I did with that sheephead where I just like had my pole spear cocked and point blanked it in the face because it thought I couldn't see it. And I was like, this is like hacking the reef to me. This is the most fun I've ever had fishing because I don't know, it's not even that rewarding when I'm like chasing a fish and getting like a half ass shot because I'm like making <laughs> bubbles and scaring them off. Like, I don't know. I'd much rather get a shot like that. Yeah. I think there's a big payoff of people that are thoughtful with spearfishing. Like, the Hail Marys, like, sometimes it does feel good when you, you know, you're like, oh, you're like just that humming and hurrying, like, should I even take this <laughs> shot? I don't want to wound it. 
but then you do it and you, and you actually pull it off and you you get the fish in and there's a good feeling to that too but sometimes when you figure something out and you and you run in a little experiment and the payoffs there like but there's there's a high rate of failure too though oh yeah you're just experimenting that's how it works right mm. <laughs> yeah and I, I, mean, I mean i've also had the i've also had the buck fever like i definitely i've i've been at the islands and had shots at yellowtail kingfish and mm. uh you know, it's the like, I remember afterward, it would be going through my head, like never swim toward them, mm. wait for them to come to you, flash your hand. And I would take a shot at them, like angling away while just chasing them. Like, I feel it's, like it takes time to even get used to like how much you're going to freak out when you see a really cool fish. Yeah, 100%. And it's almost like you've got to bugger a few up before you finally come to terms with managing the excitement for some species. Learn from the best. Adam Stern's courses at freedivingfamily.com are written and presented by some of the world's best freedivers and most experienced instructors. Lessons learned come from years of freediving and teaching at the highest levels and are now condensed and available for everyone. Go to freedivingfamily.com, use the code SPIRO and you get 20% off any course. Now there's frenzel, advanced frenzel, hands-free equalization, there's mouthful and deep frenzel equalization, even bi-finning essentials. Get that finning technique right. It's the one percenters that make the difference in spearing and allow you to have more time on the bottom and you feel better even doing it. Go to freedivingfamily.com and use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course. Adam Stern's courses at freedivingfamily.com. In the world of freedive spearfishing, there's no magic breathing technique that's all of a sudden going to get you down and shoot massive fish at depth and holding big bottom times. But there is a way to do it safer and smarter, take down more fuel to maximise the time that you have there. Learn at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted with Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. If you take down more fuel, you can stay for longer. Learning to take a bigger breath is not such a big deal. Ted breaks it down for you with a free online course at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. Take down 20 to 30% more air just by learning how to take a full breath. Again, learn how to do it free at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. The Fishing Trips app allows you to find new people who are interested in going spearfishing. So you can go for a trip together. It's a great way to make friends and get some extra trips. If you are looking to get out on boats, if you're in an isolated part of the area where you don't have a spearfishing club, and you still want to find a dive buddy and dive safer and smarter, download the Fishing Trips app. It's available on iOS or Android. Download it today. The Fishing Trips app will help you connect with your next best spearfishing buddy. Fishing Trips app. Download on iOS or Android today. I was watching Meat Eater. I think they're in their 10th season. And uh, it was muzzleloading um, a deer. And they were flushing. And they had to, it was like, I can't even remember which state it's in, but... They've got this obscure law where you can only hunt them muzzle loading, and they were flushing deer towards Steve, and he he buggers it off, he buggers it up like, uh, and I really enjoyed that. I, I really like meat eater as well. Um, I like hunting as well, but it's it's again, it's an opportunity cost thing. It's sort of, you know, as you get older and you get, you, you know, it seems like sometimes you've got less time. You've kind of just got to focus in on your game. But I do enjoy watching it. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit of a sissy about killing mammals these days. Like I came back to hunting. I went up to my dad's property in Northern California and shot a black tailed deer. And I was like, don't get me wrong. I love having the meat in my freezer. I'm, I, I think it's, there's definitely something healthy about forcing yourself to like confront what it means to eat meat. But, uh, yeah, it was a little, it was a little less comfortable than when I was, you know, 16. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I think it is uncomfortable, and I think sometimes I, I get weirded out that we have a disassociation with fish because I, I think there are also animals that we also value them and cherish certain characteristics. Like groper have their own personality. You know, octopus. You know, if, if nothing else, that my octopus teacher has taught us that they they have a character all of their own. Um, someone messaged me early, uh, Jody. She was saying um, she was going after an octopus the other day. And this large octopus is throw, it's like throwing its baby at her so that it could make an escape. <laughs> and I thought like anthropomorphism, you know, anthropomorphism sometimes gives us all the best characteristics of an animal, but nature is sometimes at, at times pretty cruel as well. Um, so well, yeah, nature's metal. I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie, I, I do anthropomorphize octopus. I remembered reading something about like you can you can sometimes find an octopus because they they make a little front porch to their cave with all these rocks and shells. And I was like, I'm not gonna go kill something with a front porch. Like <laughs> <laughs> they eat so like good. A Disney though. villain or something. When I was in Spain, they call it pulpo. And they've got like 15, 20 different ways of cooking it in every single way. It's absolutely delicious. Have you mucked around with <laughs> cooking octopus? No, I haven't messed with octopus at all. Honestly, um, I'll do squid. There's like a lot of mollusks I'll do, but I, I've even caught a couple of octopus that were a little on the small side here in California, just like grabbed them in my hand, but never could bring myself to be like, I'm just going to bite this thing in the brain and take it off. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got a line, eh? Everyone's got an ethical line. <laughs> I do like your channel, man. So Spencer Allen on YouTube. Um, there's a, there's a concept that has been, becoming more and more uh, available to me. Like some of the some of the biggest cooking philosophies with seafood um, have been sort of making themselves known to me. Because I'll, I'll be honest, before I started this book project, I, I I thought I maybe knew more about seafood cooking than I did. Obviously, the Whole Fish Cookbook's been a, a massive source of inspiration to me and you. Um, but in your channel, um, you make a lot of these recipes really accessible. And, and you take on some difficult species like um, urchins, which I want to chat about in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about umami. It's, oh. a, it's, a, it's a concept that until you hear the word and have it explained to you and sort of see it in the context of a couple of recipes, like umami is kind of like, what, what is it? Yeah, so it's basically another part of the flavor spectrum. Like it's, you know, it comes in the form of monosodium glutamate, which, um, you know, we also, I don't know if that's like a global thing, but in America, we have this pseudo racist belief that like monosodium glutamate is bad for you. Um, it's actually not, it's been dispelled by science, but it, it brings about this flavor that's kind of, I'm trying to think of how I would even describe it. Um, it, it exists a ton in the ocean. It exists a ton in Japanese cooking and mm. most Asian cuisines. Um, how would I describe umami? Um, Give us one of my favorite ways to get at it yeah. is actually through um, kelp. Um, like it, it's technically what you're getting is like sodium glutamate when you use um, kombu. It's like a dried seaweed that you can actually use to um, make stocks from. You can cure fish with it. It's a really amazing tool in the kitchen. Um, but it's basically this salty kind of of the ocean flavor mm, nice i like it you explain that really well um umami is seems to be a discrete goal of a lot of dishes in um, seafood cooking um some of your recipes 
do it quite well. Like there's a deep fried sculpin and rockfish video that you do. Um, and, and I think you talked about it a bit in there. But um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was overcooking, which seems to be another prevalent thing in seafood cooking that all of us have done, particularly if you're cooking whole fish. I wanted to ask you how you kind of avoid overcooking or, or conversely, I guess, undercooking and then having to put it back in the oven or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest. I think that's a, a big challenge. Like I remembered someone explained to me once that there are like these tiers to understanding, like say how to cook a steak, right? Like a lot of us will start out with a certain temperature and a certain time and you just paint by numbers within that structure. Mm. Um, and then you can go to more like understanding how it looks by its doneness. And then there's like getting into the point where like you're actually able to touch it and understand by feel actually how firm it's become. Mm -hmm. And I think it like when you start looking toward like professional level cooking, then it just becomes the ability to replicate that at scale. Right. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it's a lot of experimenting. Um, I've overcooked a bunch of fish. Um, <laughs> and I think fish is the worst for overcooking. Um, I think it's really easy to turn it into burlap if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about saltwater fish, though, my attitude is always undercook it and just eat it anyway. Um, that's where I err on the side of just because it's going to be safe and I like to eat a lot of raw fish. Why do you think we have this idea that, um, you know, like having undercooked fish is unsafe? Well, I think it's just this idea that undercooked anything is unsafe, like without mm. understanding the like the reasoning behind it. Like mm. if I understood correctly, like there's a certain amount of like handling pork, like trigonosis being this huge thing that you just don't mess with raw pork. Yeah, like, 100%. That is a big deal and has been in the past, but it's not as prevalent as it used to be. And it's not, I'm not going to give people advice on what they should be eating in their health here, but like, as far as I understand, it's not necessarily as prevalent as it used to be based on the way our handling practices have come along. But there's still this stigma of like, oh my God, like a, a medium cooked pork chop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas like chicken, you don't want to mess with salmonella. That's actually serious. Yeah, yeah. Tr trigonosis too, like with pork, like if you get it above a certain temp, it pretty much kills everything for a certain period of time. I think with salmonella, like correct handling, obviously like refrigeration's done away with a lot of it, but you still can't really mess with them. With fish though, like, I, I mean, there are there's spoiling diseases, which is like, yeah. um, particularly like if you wash fillets in fresh water and then you don't remove that moisture, like um, you've pretty much just introduced a home for bacteria, which is where you get a lot of the spoiling from. But if you dry a fillet out, like, you know, people are dry aging fish now for like 10, 12 days. Like unless there's like, um, uh, you know, like worms in it or, you know, like parasites or, you know, some of these sorts of things, like really like fish you can do. It's a lot more versatile, I think, than some of us have an understanding for. Yeah. And I actually, I listened to Josh Nyland talking on David Chang's podcast the other day. Okay. And they were having this whole conversation about how a lot of people just aren't comfortable with like anything that isn't just a filet that came from a package that goes on the grill and goes on a plate. Right. Yeah. I think it goes beyond like a fear of eating raw meat and more just this idea that like they're accustomed to a very specific way of eating that's abstract from understanding that you're eating an actual animal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's like it's the supermarket culture, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's we want to be three steps removed from it, but as 
Spiros as as hunters in the ocean, we 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 should really be a couple of steps ahead of that. So, but it's funny how our cooking ideas have come from that same sort of supermarket culture. Which I mean, it's one thing I've really wanted to do away with 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 the ninety nine Spiro recipes book. And um, some of your submissions, by the way, are, are pretty bloody mouth watering. Thank you. So. Um, I, I'm just going to list a couple so people have got an idea of what you've submitted. You've got yuzu ponzu dressed sheephead sashimi, rock scallop watermelon aqua chiles. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I think it's like agua chiles. I'm aqua such chiles. a such a wero. I'm a, I'm a gringo. I'm not gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Me too, especially when it comes to Spanish stuff or the, you know South American recipes. But they've they've had their own massive influence as well, particularly ceviche, which you've done a ruby red vermilion rock. Rockfish, um, a calico poke, poke bowl. Um, I don't even know what Jacama Roses was. What? What can you? T- can you? <laughs> oh, uh, so basically, what I did. Um, I one of the biggest challenges for me in cooking, and it's kind of the thing that I've tried to lean in and get better at as quickly as possible, is presentation. I feel yeah. like it's really fun to like kind of deconstruct the restaurant experience as much as that's possible, and say like. How am I going to make like a really nice dish for my wife that she would feel like I put a lot into? Mm. Um, I So what I did there was I basically very, very thinly sliced jicama, um, which is kind of like a, it's a root vegetable that doesn't have a lot of flavor. It's almost like coconut meat. Okay. Um, but it's just, it's a nice, I, I feel like there's a nice like kind of subclass of vegetables like daikon, maybe cabbage, a lot of different radishes that just make a really good, almost like bed for the fish, a garnish, Ah, if you will, uh, that's also really edible. Um, So what I did was I then cut them and basically kind of spiraled them out into these little roses that I would like put a little bit of cherry tomato inside of. It's a weird crossover, isn't it? Like you've got a a few little happy marriages there. Like spearfishing is an art and a skill and you can get lost in it like completely. Cooking is also an art and a skill that you can get absolutely lost in. And I think there's a real sense of pleasure that come from both. And then you've also added into it photography and videography, which is, again, is another massive rabbit hole. I don't understand how you've managed to do all three to the level that you have. But back back to seafood just for a sec. Like, yeah. I, I think with spearfishing, like, a lot of us become absolutely obsessed with it. And then as you get better at spearfishing – you catch you can catch more and more selectively better tasting species like and by better tasting i mean like you don't have to be a very good cook to make them taste good for others and so you can become more and more fussy and then it means that your cooking skills don't develop in parallel with your spearfishing level of skill i think you, it's almost like you need to harness that passion that you have from preparing something special for other people is that would can you relate to that at all Absolutely. So I kind of have this philosophy about spearfishing that I think emerged specifically when I started having more friend, uh, sorry, more fun with my friend Alyssa was this idea of like making do with what you have. Um, I've look, I have all the respect in the world for a lot of people I know who went and shot their first white sea bass six months in and put a bluefin tuna in the boat a year later, like these people who are just like fast tracking their way through all of the achievements. Um, I just, I don't know, maybe it is like jack of all trades, master of none, and like the kind of stuff that I take into the water. I'm not really, I'm interested in those things, but I think it becomes a question of like, 
what I'm willing to put forward for it. Like, am I going to spend $800 to go down to San Diego and jump on a boat and maybe get skunked? Like, Mm. is that going to feel good? And is that risk worth the reward? Mm. Um, On the other hand, I kind of look at what I have in front of me and it's been an absolute blast exploring like, okay, um, what's it like to play around with this new recipe that I found on this kind of fish that I can go get today? Like I can go to the grocery store in the ocean and pull up some scallops and uni and fish and I can do the math in my head and pretend like what it would cost me to go to a restaurant and buy that. That's just kind of a fun game for me, I guess. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I was reading something you wrote too. You were talking about like, I think it was on Instagram. You're talking about like, you look in the fridge and it's like three days, uh, you know, seven days after you've been to the grocery store and you've just got, you've got nothing left in there. But the challenge then becomes like, what can I make this really cool with what I have left? And I think um, sometimes it's like, you know, that necessity is the mother of all invention. And it's like when you've got nothing left, it forces you to get down and be creative. Some people have that, though, and some people don't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like, so I think about this a lot. When I first got into the sport, I've kind of forced myself to, like, I literally, I will uninstall Instagram from my phone when I'm not posting on it. And I'll reinstall it when I go back to post. Because if I catch myself looking at it, I feel like my behavior almost becomes derivative of what I see on the internet. And I think when I joined, I I think you can find this in anything. You can find it in the fitness world. You can definitely find it in the spearfishing world. It's like right now, lobster season just opened here, and I am not interested in looking at everybody's limits that they've dumped out on the deck. And I'm not like, I, I, I think it's awesome that people are getting limits. But it just drives me nuts to see it if I'm too busy to get out in the water. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like sometimes it influences my behavior where I feel like I'm being told what I should be doing. Like this like yeah. standard that I'm supposed to meet. There's a fine line between inspiration and kind of comparison, isn't it? It's like, you know, like it's great to go through and be inspired to do something or try something new or be encouraged by someone else's achievements. And, but then there's the other side of it where it turns into envy or, you know, at the very least comparing yourself to others or what they, they have done or are doing. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's something that I catch myself doing too. And it, it encourages traits sometimes that are they're not ones that I want to aspire to. Um, I like some of the sides of it, but I, I'm very conscious also of the other side of it. Well, I think a really good litmus test for me, and this was kind of what pushed me away from social media a little bit, was like, you know, I mentioned like if I'm out in the water with my buddy and they shoot a fish, I'm just as excited for them as if it was me. Mm. If I see someone post on Instagram, I'll gut check myself sometime. I'll be like, oh, I am not happy for you, you fucker. Like, (laughs) I don't need to be looking at that. Those, I do not need to be encouraging that in myself. Yeah, yeah, the expectations versus reality too. Like sometimes what you see on social media and what's actually happened in real life are two different things as well. But um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Uni, uh, it's urchins, isn't it? Suge- yeah, sea yeah, urchin. Yeah. Um, why do you think people have such like visceral, strong, almost like automatic disgust for them when they haven't even tried them or even considered them as a, as a potential uh, item to put on the plate? Well, I think it goes back to that, like, you know, you'll give a kid like broccoli or guacamole or something. And like, you can expect that most kids are going to be grossed out. At least like, I'm thinking American culture, because I think a lot of other cultures like have very good predisposition, like Japanese people will 
eat the hell out of some weird stuff that I probably wouldn't touch yeah. on the whole. Um, but I remember I was in a sushi restaurant in Alabama. Well, like inland Alabama ordering, uh, like someone like dared me to order the sea urchin and it was like not fresh sea urchin is not good. It's bitter. It can have notes of, uh, feces. It can, it can be pretty freaking gross. I've gotten some bad uni that wasn't fresh in a restaurant. It was horrible. Uh, I got like bitter uni and was like, I can't imagine anyone eating this. And the texture is very, very delicate and almost paste like, Mm. um, especially if it's had time to break down. Cause it's like almost these little spherified bits that like hold a really nice firm texture. But mm. as soon as it starts to break down, it's you, you almost want to serve them just having been cracked. Mm. Um, I think it's just, you look at them and they're kind of horrifying. I mean, they're full of like jet black innards, like Halloween orange colored. You're eating the reproductive organism. <laughs> like, you're definitely, <laughs> You're getting into some adventurous food eating. There's no lie about that. But (laughs) yeah, it's one of my favorite things. I I absolutely love it. I like your video. uh, And I didn't even actually know. Well, maybe I'd forgotten that we were actually eating the the gonads (laughs) (laughs) of this creature. But you did a great job of breaking one down, how to break one down. Um, But in terms of like the different species of urchin and – Seasonally, I wanted to talk about the change in the in the in the flavor profile because I've cracked open urchins and had an absolute ball. I can eat probably I could probably eat twenty urchins honestly some days. Like I can just keep going, particularly in New Zealand. Like temperate water seems really well suited to them. Here in the subtropics, so like in Queensland, I've cracked them open and they've been absolutely terrible. Water temperature, salinity seems to play into it, but also times of the year. Can you just give us a quick walkthrough on your understanding of the different species and flavor profiles? So I can only speak for Southern California. Sometimes I'll see pictures from people in New Zealand. I'm like, what the hell am I looking at? That's a weird looking urchin. But like in Southern California, we have two main urchin and it's the purple and the red. The reds get a lot bigger. The purple are the ones with the horrible reputation for coming in and just absolutely devastating the kelp forests. Um, But basically my best understanding is I think it's early in the year, and this is me parroting what I've heard from somebody else, but I think like early in the year, their reproductive cycle kicks in. And once they've spawned, uh, you get a much lesser yield from the row itself. Um, There's also kind of like a grading system by color that we have, like red California sea urchin, I understand to be one of the most famous in the world. it's a it's a really really great urchin to eat uh but you kind of go from like this light almost like bright yellow down to like orange and then like you'll pull some that look kind of brown i honestly don't even mess with them if they're looking brown yeah um but if it's if i understand correctly it's like after they've reproduced kind of early in the year i want to say even february that's when the yield is almost like started to fall off and you you kind of don't even mess with them. And it also like if you're pulling from an urchin baron and they don't have a bunch of food, those little purple urchins have almost yeah. gone into like hibernation and you just don't get much from them. Yeah, that's my understanding too from reading a bunch of research. It's like you can – but they'll sort of go into this like this hibernation phase and they'll stay like that for a long time with absolutely like a really poor yield inside. But they, they, they won't die off. They just sort of hang on and survive and – choke out the um the kelp systems you guys have there but um i love them man i had a friend last time i was in new zealand 
was March last year and uh, uh, made friends with David and E.T. And E.T. had spent a lot of time living in China. And she absolutely loves these things. She's got a bunch of cool recipes for them too. I listened to that episode. I had a lot of fun listening to that. Yeah. Um, I think what's so cool to me about it is I think it's a, it's a, it's a perspective check, like an attitude mm. check. Um, there's always kind of a silver lining for me when I'm going diving. And one of the things to me is like, there is literally nothing I can bring home that would make my wife happier than sea urchin. It's one of her favorite things to get. She always gets it when we go out for sushi. And I always know where they are when I'm diving. So I can always just make a stop on the rock and grab two or three and throw them in the car. And I at least don't feel like I'm going home empty handed. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the same thing. Uh, you talked about scallops as well. It's like, uh, some some people view it as like a consolation prize, but like when I'm down in Melbourne, that like even if the spearfishing's cactus, like it is during certain times of the year down there, it, despite that, they, they have like massive southern bluefin tuna, and they've got, you know, some really cool um, species at certain times of the year. Sometimes it's just not not great spearing, but the scallop beds are just prolific down there, and some of the nicest seafood you can eat is is is, is meals prepared with scallops. I reckon. No, it, I think they're super fun. Yeah, it's nice having um, backup options, I think, when you're spearing. It's like we're not just spearos, like we're foragers as well. And uh, I think sometimes, like, there's no glory in it. Like, you're not going to hold up a trophy scallop. Well, maybe you are, but, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like there's no, like, you don't get any ego points or credit scores for it. You're doing it purely because you you like seafood and you like creating stuff. So speaking of trophy scallops, there is a really cool thing uh, that happens here in Southern California. We have oil rigs um, and you can get on a boat and go out to them. And it's it's kind of a, a gut check on how good of a diver you are, because apparently they pressure wash down to 20 meters um, regularly because all this stuff grows on them and the currents come through and it can kind of damage them if they're not keeping them somewhat streamlined. Um, but if you go past 20 meters, they never pressure wash. So the scallops just freely grow and there's nothing out there browsing on them. And I've seen people bring back scallops that are like dinner plates, like huge, oh, huge wow. scallops that just keep growing. Um, I think the the last time I went out, I was not capable of getting to like 30 meters while prying, but I was watching some really good divers pull some amazing scallops off. Wow. And are you getting yellowtail and stuff congregate around there? Um, not to my knowledge, I've never heard people hunting straight up off the rigs like that, but um, I wouldn't imagine it's out of the equation. Hey Shrek, holy smokes my big green friend, you guys have been smashing it over there. Every episode of the Noob Sparrow Podcast is full of actionable spearfishing info. Over here at Spearing Magazine HQ, it's the same, buddy. We just released a massive issue of women in spearfishing, and we're ramping up for a holiday buyer's issue right now. It's exciting times, and I'm stoked that so many noobers are submitting their adventures, lessons learned, and pictures here at SpearingMagazine.com. Just wanted to say that Noobers can get an international subscription at SpearingMagazine.com. Also, they can check out our In the Face apparel or get a subscription to the greatest Spearing Magazine on the planet right here at SpearingMagazine.com. Shrek, love the Noob Spiro podcast. This is Jeremy from Spearing Magazine. Thank you, my friend. I just love a functional and simple spear gun that I can trust when I pull the trigger. Killshot Spear Guns utilize the finest of kiln-dried Burmese teak. Killshot Spear Guns also combine American-made parts and fine craftsmanship to bring you accurate, reliable, and simple spear guns that you can trust fish after fish. Get $30 off 
any Killshot Spear Gun at KillshotSpearGuns.com. Yes and amen, Uber. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at KillshotSpearGuns.com. I'm really sorry for this terrible accent. Brought to you by Ed Martin at KillshotSpearGuns.com. Equalizing problems can be something that derail you. Not today, my friend. Go to freedivingfamily.com. Check out the, either the Frenzel and Advanced Frenzel video or the Mouthful and Deep Frenzel Equalization course at freedivingfamily.com. You can use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. These courses are put together by Adam Stern and a select team of, of, of legends and to help you overcome different issues and help you perform better. And some of them are extremely relevant for freedive spearing. Check it out at freedivingfamily.com. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course. One thing you messaged me about was like um, you, you you sort of work and operate in a pretty high pressure area and you almost took like a sabbatical, like you just decided to bail on it and start making some videos and really getting into your spirit. Talk about talk about that experience. Like, um, Oh, yeah. So um, I've been a tech recruiter for 10 years now. I work in the software industry in LA and uh, I don't know. The, the pandemic hit and like calling up strangers and being like, hey, do you want a new job? Just didn't really feel like what I wanted to do. Yeah, fair <laughs> um, so I had some money saved up and I just decided I was going to stop working. And I think the first month I just kind of sat around even. And oh, well, of course I did because they literally closed the beach. Like we would have to like sneak out if we were going to get our kayaks out past the surf. Um, there was literally one beach we had that we could go out on during lockdown. And um you know, once that happened, I just started thinking about what I wanted to do with my time. And I think, you know, I went to school for sound engineering. I've been a amateur photographer for going on 20 years. It's just a passion of mine. I think I just started playing around with the idea of like, what would be bigger than a little Instagram video. And before I knew it, like, I was like keeping myself up at night, like working on these videos and these ideas. And before I knew it, I had like cranked out this whole video. And I think it just kind of evolved into this feeling of like having a little bit of a personal journal with like a lot more than a pen in my hand, but it, it just felt like this way to kind of understand a little bit better and I guess share a little bit about like what I love about the sport. That's what I love about them. And so they're like these sort of these seven to 10 minute sort of microcosms into like someone's personal thoughts and experience into a real unique part of our sort of spearfishing world. And I like it because like, A, you're thoughtful, but, but it's also like an immersive experience. Like, you, you know, like obviously your sound background plays into it, but um, it, they're really thoughtful sort of representations of very small parts of the sport. And I really, I really enjoy it because um, to me, that's what spearfishing is. It's like, it's not just bang, 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 shooting like, fish all the time it's like i don't know there's more there's more to it than that there's a full experience i feel like meat eater does that for hunting and i feel like in spearfishing like that some of daniel Mann's videos are very much like this too like so, sometimes like i remember saying to daniel like i love watching this video you know like it's eight minutes long and you only shot one fish but in terms of the value like the actual video i really enjoyed the full story the, the, the background, the, all the different shots he captures and the story he told behind it. I feel like your videos are kind of doing some of the same sort of stuff, so it's cool. Well, I'm not going to lie. Like, I even had a little bit of anxiety, like, coming to interview. Um, and I had anxiety when I would start making those videos because I do feel like, look, I grew up in rural Alabama hunting and fishing. Like, 
I am under, I I'm completely disabused of the notion that this sport is not a very masculine, very stoic sport. Mm. So like for me, like coming up with a way to like be very expressive um, and communicative about my ideas on it. It definitely took me a minute to get used to the idea just based on what I've experienced and what I've seen. But I, I also think that's what I love about your podcast. Like, I feel like it's really cool how much you're able to draw people out and kind of get their take on what they love about the sport. And I think a lot of the comments I've gotten on my videos surprised me in terms of just how much people were like, oh, I felt the same way. That's really cool. I never even thought about it like that. I remember listening to this guy once. He said, like, don't be vanilla, you know, like, and what he means is like, you know, like people like people that are unique in themselves, you know, like, and I think one thing I try to do when I talk to people is just help just get them to be who they actually are because it's there's always a massive temptation in life whether it's in spearfishing or whatever to to conform to this sort of this idea of whatever our cultural norms are and i feel like in spearfishing we need to break from that like the, and and i i think you mentioned this too it's like Within our little world of spearfishing, there's massive diversity in terms of the motivations, the ideas, the skill levels, the priorities that we we put on, the benchmarks that we set for ourselves. Like, and and yeah, I, I feel like yeah. Well, it's an honour to hear you say like you, you've enjoyed that part of the podcast as well. But for me, that's what it's kind of all about. It's like it's it's talking to different people that have different takes on it. I like I like your videos because. They, to me, they're kind of like that too. It's the more honest side of spearfishing. It's not really about trophies. It's about the experience. It's about the food, the, the, the you know, the actual diving itself. I, I, I like it. So um, who are you, your, some, some of your favourite people that you've, um, you know, you've enjoyed hearing their stories and their sort of takes on the world? I, I mean, I remember you saying you like, you know, you like Dan Mann's videos too, I believe. Oh, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, I actually was like taking diligent notes. I probably listened to that episode a few times just because the one thing I suck with is a GoPro. I'm so bad at it. I'm so accustomed to having an SLR camera in my hand, like getting good angles and knowing how to shoot with it. I'm always at a disadvantage. I love listening to him talk. Um, Kimmy Werner was probably one of the biggest influences I had because it was right as I got my pole spear, I was driving to the coast and listening to her talk about how she feels like everybody should like come up on the pole spear. Um, I also just kind of like, I don't know. I got this impression from her. Like she represents a voice in the spearfishing world. That's really cool to me. I think it's just, again, like very genuinely herself. Like I can see why so many people are responsive to her. Just, she's just a really kind person. It seems. Yeah, she is too. And, um, it's yeah, it's 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 an interesting line to walk sometimes. Um, yeah, to try and uh, to just be yourself in the face of um, criticism as well is is, is kind of hard as well. Um, well, you actually make a really good point. Um, I, I actually so one of the things that kind of frustrates me about the spearfishing world is I think like some people tend to mistake stewardship with gatekeeping. Like this idea that like they're making the spearfishing world better by making it less welcoming, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like there's this idea that there's like a wrong way to spearfish. And yes, there are, there are wrong ways to spearfish. You can totally be dangerous and you can misrepresent the sport and you can be illegal. There's all kinds of ways you can screw it up. But I think there's a, I don't know, there's just a little bit of a tendency to snipe in this sport that I see that I'm not always crazy about. I think a lot of, Spiros, whether they're men or women, are sort of rugged individuals 
very sort of uh, autonomous and what do you call that? What's that word? Like, you know, like they, they've got that attitude, like I'm, I'm going to do this thing regardless. And, and I think spearfishing demands a level of resilience and persistence, which is why there's this, this kind of group of people that make it through. But in spite of that, it's amazing how different they all are. But I think speaking to what you're talking about with this idea of stewardship versus gatekeeping, I, I can see that too. And it's like, if we allow everyone to suffer and struggle through it, it's like, oh, then they'll end up with the same ethics that we have. And I think some of the learning curve is inevitable. The struggle is inevitable. But teaching, you can teach people ethics and you can teach them the right way to go about it from the start. And you don't necessarily have to nurse them or, you know, like um, lead them down the trail. Like, I don't know. So, so this might be like going out on a political limb here, but like I work in the software industry and one of the hardest things to do is hire a team that is not just a bunch of white dudes. And I literally hire software engineers for a living. And my, my CTO happens to be a Jordanian woman. She's one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with. But like, if you work with somebody in the industry, who's made it to a position of leadership after like a 20 year career, they will tell you every single one of them that it's not like, it's not hard to get women to become software engineers. It's hard to get them to stay in the industry because it's not very hospitable to them. And they generally get run out of the industry. And I, I have a lot of opinions about it, but I feel like there is a tendency to overlap in that way. Like, I think, I think a lot of people try to get into spearfishing and they try it and it's already hard on its own, but it's also really hard to socialize. Like I'm, I'm this, like I go into spearfishing forums and I look around and I'm trying to find new buddies. And I always just go back to like, I don't know. I got two or three people that I really like. Am I willing to go out with a Yahoo and see if they're going to point their spear gun at my face today? Like, yeah, I don't know. Risk reward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Finding new buddies and um, finding good dive crew is like some of the toughest challenges in spearfishing. And uh, I had the same stuff. Like when I started out, um, me and a mate who got horrendously seasick, even when we shore dived in like sheltered waters, <laughs> Uh, his name was Mike. Shout out to Mike, who no longer spears, by the way. But either both of us were equally clueless, and we had one guy that we kind of knew by association who was like one of the five best spearos in Australia. And, you know, we were kind of like asking him to take us out. And, and, I mean, he's a busy dude, family, like full career and stuff. You know, like it wasn't going to happen. And so him and I, we went out like spearfishing in all the wrong places, did it illegally, and uh, and he was violently seasick. We shot terrible fish, and we just struggled in like that for like probably 18 months until I developed a level of competence without any formal training and then somehow managed to bullshit my way out onto a boat midweek because the guy couldn't find any dive buddies. And that was how I sort of got my break into spearing. And then so for me, like the noob spearo, when I – when, when I met up with Turbo for a Macca's meeting about starting, it was kind of like we wanted to solve some of these struggles and I don't think we've got any further with it other than, you know, like you you help hire people. Um, so you know how hard it is to connect people. Like, and I don't know, it's, it's we still haven't solved this challenge in spearfishing. No, I mean, like my core competency as a recruiter is like researching someone's profile online and writing them a very thoughtful note and saying like, hey, I actually took the time to understand who you are. We should be friends. Mm -hmm. And 
that's actually what served me in my path in getting into kayak fishing, spear fishing. Like every good dive buddy that I've made, every fishing buddy I've made, I've generally made some gesture of like, hey, this is who I am. These are my values unambiguously. These are my interests. Mm. And like, these are my circumstances. And I think those are three actually really solid criteria, like circumstances, values, and interests. Because like, you know, if you're with somebody who's in it for thrill seeking, who wants to go out and be all adrenaline all the time, they're probably not going to be down to go pop some scallops off a rock on a lazy day. Right. (laughs) Like, And that's fine. I don't begrudge somebody wanting to get on a boat and go like ham for like, I want to do that. I have my days where I'm up for that. But I also like to be very clear about like, you know, what I'm looking for and what I want in a dive buddy. And I think when people are willing to be a little bit more open about it, like if I see a signal of like, oh, this is who this person is. One of my buddies vouches for them, something like that. I am 10 times more likely to jump in the water with them and give it a shot. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, it's hard. I think the measure of a lot of good relationships, whether it's with your dive buddies or a normal life, is like um, when you can have interpersonal conflict around something where you actually disagree fundamentally on something and then have the have the ability to talk with them about it and then survive that conflict. Um, I'm, I tend to be like a blunt force trauma trauma type dude, and like so if I've got if I've got a bug bear, like I'm going to bring it up. I'm not going to hide from that shit. There's no stuff under the carpet in my in my place, and and it, sometimes it does me favors, but sometimes it doesn't. I've burned some bridges by confronting people about stuff. Obviously, I'm not very gracious and careful with my words. I sometimes, think but. the older I get, the more I've gotten like I think I've gotten better about being proactive about that kind of stuff. I had a couple of dive buddies in the beginning. So like, let's say, I don't know, there's two dive sites, right? That are about a half hour away from my house each. And I could go to one or the other. And I've got a lot of preference for one of them. Okay. And this dive buddy I'm with really wants to go to dive site B and go on three trips. And I'm just going to be accommodating and be like, you know what? We'll go to your place because you feel strongly about this. We'll try it your way. But there comes a point in the relationship where I'm like, when are we going to go to my spot? Because I'd still rather go there. Yeah. And like at a certain point, I'll just finally say like, Hey, it, if we can't like level this out a little bit and do what I want to do as much as you want to do it, it's okay. I'm just not going to dive with you anymore. Yeah, but we yeah. need to talk about this and not pretend it's not happening. Yeah. 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 That's a delicate give and take. Yeah, I think um, nuts. in, in uh, a lot of places around the world, you know, like, People, Spiro is like boats afford people amazing opportunity more than way more than shore diving because shore diving you might have your four or five spots but if you continue to go to them like you're gonna you're gonna fish them out or you know I don't know like you, you just want to spread your fishing efforts over a wider area boats allow you to do that so okay. kind of an, a natural equalizer in the spearfishing world is the person that owns the boat is the skipper and they are the leader. <laughs> so yeah, you might be able to influence them and say some stuff, but ultimately the call is theirs about where you go and what you do. And if you don't like it, then you just have to buy a boat and start your own crew, um, which is a funny distinction, but it's one that happens regardless. But um, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the delicate negotiations of spearfishing buddies are uh, – or a funny thing. I think when you talk about boats, like the, the, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been thinking about getting a boat for a while, but one of the things that really stuck out to me, and I think it was really cool coming from kayak fishing is 
a pared down fish, like um, everyone in Southern California uses the Scupper Pro. It's one of the oldest models of ocean kayaks. It was designed in the 70s by a guy who grew up in Southern California making the first ocean kayaks. And like, it's the coolest thing because you have this, this thing that ranges out past where any shore diver would go. But most of the boats in Southern California would rather go to the islands if they're going to go inshore. So the kayak kind of puts you in this interesting middle ground where it's a lot of work. You're carrying a lot of gear. You really commit for the day. But there's something really special about diving off a kayak in California. We, we have the same thing like here in Queensland. Like a lot of the shore diving opportunities, even on a kayak, are not great. Kayaks are really effective, particularly in areas of the Sunshine Coast. But um, like... Boats is sort of what make the difference out here. And fiberglass hulls are quite popular. They just seem to ride really well, particularly in the type of ocean we have. And yet we're doing a similar thing. We're using hulls that came out of the late 70s and 80s, uh, built built by a guy called, uh, I think his name's John Haynes. And these boats are just absolutely the bee's knees. Everyone's retrofitting them and doing them up. And they put in new stringers and floor and a transom and put a bigger output on it and away you go. And these things are still fetching like really good money here. And the most popular boats alternative to that are based on that. Um, and and it's, it's funny, like some of the best, I mean, you know, uh, designed equipment we have comes out of that era. So it's good. It's so funny. You're talking about something my buddy and I are literally discussing right now. It's like this range of fiberglass boats where you can go in and like I grew up building houses. So I'm like, can I rip a boat apart and figure out how to put it back together? Like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into yet. It's probably not going to be great, yeah. but <laughs> there's so much to it, to a boat design as well. And, uh, um, I'm going to end up having to do a couple of episodes on boats, I think, and maybe get a couple of different modern manufacturers on to talk about it because, like it, it opens up a whole new world in spearfishing, and um, but yeah, like saying so- SoCo, everyone talks about the Channel Islands. Have you been out there much? Oh yeah, um, yeah. I I'm a huge fan of the islands here. I think they're some of the best fishing and diving you can get. Okay, cool. Any um, cool, memorable fish experience out, out there or inshore? Let's see. We were just out there for lobster season open. Uh, We went out to Santa Cruz Island, um, did a little lobster diving. That was really fun. Um, My buddy ended up shooting. I think it just tipped the scale at 10 pounds in the middle of the night, shot a big sheephead. Um, This sheephead was so big. I was standing on the boat, like emptying my lobster bag. And I look over and he throws this fish down on the deck and his knife is still in its head. And the fish <laughs> flopped so hard that the knife came flying up within about an inch of my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we had a we had a really good trip out there. I mean, any time out at the islands with good weather is pretty amazing. It's yeah. it's a really beautiful place. Um, and you get like I think that weekend there were tuna off the backside of the island running around. Like you get yellowtail and white sea bass in the right seasons. It's a it's a really magical place. So how many islands are there, and what's your sort of? Are you, is there a lot of current out there? Are you? Um, is it is it working around the tides, the tidal movement? Yeah, it really depends. I'm not a huge expert on the islands. Um, I actually so down near like San Diego, there's like San Clemente Island. Um, then you come up like just out of Los Angeles is Catalina Island. That's yep. where all the sport boats go for fishing. It gets a lot of pressure. Okay. Um, and then you go up uh, a little bit further north and you kind of have all the channel islands. Okay. Um, 
to the best of my knowledge, you can like, assuming the weather isn't absolutely garbage, you can always kind of pick a side of the Island, um, depending on how the swell is playing. Um, I even did a trip, uh, they call it like a mothership trip, uh, a few years back where the boat loads up 20 kayaks with anglers on like oh, an cool. overnight or like a party boat. And they anchor up for the night on San Clemente and they do a drift for two days straight where they put everybody's kayaks in the water and let you drift and they'll come out ahead of you. Uh, we had Spiros on that trip. It was a lot of fishermen, but it was such a nice experience where you uh, you get out there and they've got a dinghy on the boat. You pull out your radio and you're like, I want a beer and a sandwich and come get my fish. Like oh, it's kind of like a VIP treatment. <laughs> that sounds good as. But yeah, there's a really good yellowtail down at San Clemente. Um, I've heard of people catching. I've hooked and lost bluefin there. It's a really nice spot. Um, cool. I wanted to chat with you briefly about um, the parallels between fishing and spearfishing. But before we get there, like, um, I'd love to hear one of the funniest things you've experienced out spearing. So I thought about this long and hard, and <laughs> I feel like such a boring person because I don't really have an especially funny spearfishing story. But if I can bend the rules, I'll tell you one story that it's like, it's why my wife will never go spearfishing or fishing with me. And it bums me out because I really wish my wife fished. Um, so right, like shortly after I moved to Los Angeles, my wife and I were broke as hell. We got a tax refund and we went to this little like Korean fishing store. And I was like, I remember I used to go fishing. I'll take you out fishing, we'll go surf fishing. And um, I bought these like cheap little spinning rods and I bought a crock spoon and I cast out a few times and just got lucky as hell and caught a just legal halibut. Like a, I think it was like a 26 inch halibut. Wow. And I remembered reading that when you catch a halibut, you want to have this little baseball bat to just like brain them in the head. And that they're like a toothy fish. And we didn't have a bat. So I just started punching it in the face. <laughs> and I stood there like for five minutes. It looked like something out of like a mob movie because like my <laughs> wife and I took turns like bludgeoning the shit out of this fish with like, you know, they've got that horrible, ugly face. This fish is just like gasping on the beach. And like after that, like because, you know, they have like the tiniest little brain. So they're really hard to brain. My wife was like, I'm never fucking fishing with you again. This is so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a really good website called ikejimmy.com. Um, oh, yeah. I-K-E-J-I-M-E.com. I wonder if he – because he takes down like – he's got the skull views of fish and where you need oh, wow. to icky them. And um, I wonder if he's got a hell of it up there. Like some of those flatfish, they must be – is it, are they actually categorized as a flatfish, a halibut? I like, think so. I know that um, there's like the OC Sparrows had a meetup where they, I think they put a video up explaining like halibut hunting. Yeah. And they were showing like on a fish exactly where the brain was. And it was like, it was impossibly tiny. Oh, wow. Because um, the old triangle yeah. trick doesn't work with them, you know, like where you you get the eyes and then you make an imaginary triangle point back to where you would. It just doesn't work on them, does it? I don't think so. Mm. Um, although I haven't, I haven't tried to brain a ton of halibut. I'll admit, I'm still, still trying to get my first halibut on the spear. <laughs> um, stabbing it repeatedly or punching it doesn't sound like a great look for the public. <laughs> <laughs> not so much. <laughs> I'm not exactly an ambassador for my sport, bludgeoning a halibut on the beach.
Today's new Spiro podcast is brought to you by Penetrator Fins, used by leading freedivers and Spiros, including Australian Spiros like Ian Puckridge, Kate Rogers, uh, the dynamic freediving record holder Ben Eckhart, Hawaii's Justin Lee, Kylie Umeda, as well as Canadian ice diver Magali Coat. Penetrator Fins are praised by proven performers from all over the planet. Have you got yourself a pair? Visit penetratorfins.com, use the code NoobSpiro to save $25 on any pair. That's right, go to penetratorfins.com, use the code NoobSpiro, choose yourself a pair of Penetrator Fins and get reliability that you can depend on. Penetratorfins.com. Killfish with precision and power, sending shafts from a stable platform with Kill Shots Spear Guns. Made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin, you're buying American-made dependable spear guns. Get $30 off any Kill Shot Spear Gun at killshotspearguns.com. Yes and amen, Luba. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at killshotspearguns.com. It says if they're in the shop or on the phone, they can cash in by saying, crikey, mate, or the Noob Spiro podcast sent me. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com, based in the Florida Keys. We're nearly ready to head on out with um, Spiro Q&A, but um, in terms of like your crossover from fishing to spearfishing, do you like do you still go out and do both? Or- oh, uh, so like deep water rock fishing and um, like drifting for halibut or white sea bass, it's a it's a really relaxing way to almost guarantee I'm going to fill the freezer. Like hook and line for rockfish, you can get a limit of ten. It's a really efficient way to just like put away some meat in the freezer. Um, I will admit that what's happened is spearing kind of ruined me on fishing because what I'll do is I'll get out there and like noon rolls around and the sun's beating down and I'm looking down on a reef as I'm coming in and I'm like, I could be swimming in that right now. This yeah. sucks. I'm getting sunsick. When you got a five mil on, you don't get a lot of sun exposure, even like you do with like good, like outdoor wear on. Um, I think what I like to do is dive until I'm just completely worn out and then I'll keep a little breakdown pole in my kayak and maybe just like sit there and relax when I'm too tired to dive. That's kind of how I've taken it lately. Are you getting out diving much? How often do you getting out at the moment? Uh, when I was off work last year, I think I dove like 40, 40 times in nine months. I was definitely putting in some hours. Um, and part of it was because like, I knew this video I wanted to make and I needed to get the footage. So I was like, oh, we're going back for lobster. Like, <laughs> did you make, um, um, did you make big improvements with that much time in the water? Like in terms of, I mean, I, so I only jump on the line every now and then there's a really good free dive community in Southern California. Um, and there's like these guys that are in Redondo beach every Sunday, like clockwork. And, um, I, I'm, I regret that I don't go out with them as much as I'd like because I'm always spearfishing. But um, I think I jumped on the line after a couple of years and was like, I'm going to go to 20 meters. Okay, let's try 25. Okay, drop it down to 30. Okay, 30. I, I guess we're, we're diving to 35 today. Like, that was like since my cert. Like, I was just like, I think the only thing that was really holding me off at that point was like learning to better, like, what is it? Reverse packing, like yeah. getting a little bit better on my EQ because I was just squeaking at that point. But um, so you I don't know, I think oh, are, you, are you like obviously like freediving and spearfishing two different things. Like in terms of what you can do on a line and what you can do, what you should be doing spearfishing and different things. But um, just with your equalizing there, are you reverse packing or are you doing mouthfill? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about mouthfill. Okay, so you're doing the N charge and then the M charge or whatever. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, which one is it? The the gulp, mm. uh, the grouper gulping. 
The group of gulping's more like reverse packing. It's like you're bringing it back up because you've um, okay, there you've we lost go. your mouthful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, righto. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I still do that too, which I, I really found out I was – before I went and did some of the freediving courses, I was like, oh, I'm already doing some of the shit that I shouldn't be doing. Like if you know how to do a good mouthful, you don't actually have to reverse pack so much. But I found out like reverse packing is almost like a, a maladaptive – or I'm going to say maladaptive. It's almost like a response that your body's already developed to going, shit, I've got no air to equalize down here. Whereas if you learn how to do a mouthful, you can counter some of that. But have you used any of those techniques in your sparing? Or because a lot of the SoCal stuff seems to be relatively shallow. Um, we've definitely done some work as deep as like I would say twenty meters is probably as deep as we tend to push. Most of the stuff you're hunting for, you can just find it in shallow. Yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, I don't tend to push much further than 20 meters. I did um, over the last year, I was on a road trip and I just decided to like get all the material I could on figuring out how to hands free. Yep. And I have finally figured it out. But the problem is it just the muscle isn't developed enough to go past like maybe three meters. And okay. then it just gives out immediately. Yeah, I kind of do it too. But I I still normally equalize as well. But it's a weird thing. Eh? You're talking about... <laughs> You're talking about all these techniques. It just means nothing to you until you've actually started um, playing with it. I mean, when you start talking with freedivers, they geek out on the stuff endlessly. Yeah. Okay. No, there's a there's a point at which I just stop caring. It's yeah. like I I definitely I remember somebody was talking about. I think it was um, Adam Stern was on here talking about like who would go past a level two. And I'm totally the kind of person like I don't know if you would ever get me in a level two. Yeah. I might take a level two if I had the money lying around and felt like I needed to. But yeah, I'm, I'm probably definitely not a level three kind of guy. <laughs> I feel like I need to have some massive conversations about this because I haven't. I just come through and did my instructors, and I kind of realized like where I think I, I want a, a lot of the spearing community to be trained to. But I really feel like you want to get some runs and some years under your belt before you go and start doing some of the more advanced courses because I just don't think it's necessary for a lot of it. But I feel like everyone should be doing like a stage one. Like I just feel like there's just so much in there for Spiros. Like just that, you know, 10, 10, 10 meter stuff. Like, yeah, just learning the physiology, getting comfortable with equalizing, basic duck diving, streamlining, all those techniques are just super critical and overlooked, easily overlooked. Well, I think about it like this, right? Like a technique for, for spear fishing or free diving alike, you are definitely, it's a very meditative process in that you're putting together a sequence of events and trying to get them as clean as possible. Like doing your breathe up, doing your terminal breath, taking the snorkel out of your mouth, doing the duck dive, streamlining, kicking from the hips, not the knees, like leveling off, getting yeah. your gun in the right position. Like all this shit is a sequence of events that mm. you're really trying to perfect mm. so that you can just focus in on chasing a fish yep. or grabbing a lobster. And to me, I kind of like that whole controlled environment. Like yep. a lot of people, I get the whole thing, like free diving is not spearfishing and all that. Mm. Mm. But I also really love breaking something down into its components and 100%. playing around with them in a much more controlled environment. Yep, exactly. Time to work on stuff in isolation without the distraction of like a big moving ocean, fish, a spear gun, <laughs> all the other stuff that we deal with as if our um, thing isn't complex enough, which I mean is part of the appeal, I think. I, I will also say there's something really cool about lap swimming as applied to spear fishing. Mm. Um, like the CO2 tolerance you can develop lap swimming, just the comfort in the water. Like 
because you're getting yourself so out of breath. Like the the instinct when you learn to lap swim is to take your face out of the water and gasp too much air. Mm. So you kind of force yourself into a panicked out of breath state mm. and it kind of starts to become this controlled chaos. I don't know. Last night I um, swam a pathetic like 400 meters. I don't know what that is in yards. And um, I did a, in my defense, I did like a boxing workout and went and did some weights and then I come down and, and then I had my swim and I was going to do a kilometer, a thousand meters, and then just ended up just gassing out at 400 and then having a couple of massive sauna sessions. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all have that guy um, that does effortless swimming over there. I'm such a huge fan of his channel. He does really, really good content for swimming. All right. Is that on, that's on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll check that out. Cool, man. Uh, You're a bit spoiled that part of the world in terms of spearfishing shops. What do you consider your home? And I mean, give us a rundown of your gear from head to toe. Oh, yeah. So um, as far as gear goes, I bought the cheapest Cressy apnea suit I could find at five mil. I think I spent 140 bucks ordering it online. Uh, The cheapest booties I can find because I always put holes in them. Um, I have an Epsilon gun and a pole spear. I really like those. Um, But I will say, like, I've I've been in a lot of spearfishing shops and I think they're all pretty solid. Um, but I, I have to say, like, I definitely have to mention, I'm not sponsored by them in any way, but I absolutely love blue tuna. Uh, it's this little shop in Ventura that's been around for a while. The guy, Matt, who runs it, um, I actually found out about him through my dive buddy, Alyssa, but like, they're just really great down to earth people. Like everybody who works there is really friendly. It just, I've never really felt like I was out of place there. And I think that's like a really special thing about that shop. It makes you less price sensitive too, I think, when you find a spearfishing shop where you like the people, they like you, you know, you can tell they've got your best interests at heart. And if you if you feel comfortable there, like you, you don't worry too much about saving $10 on a, on a wetsuit. Like you're quite happy to give that to your local retailer or you should, you should do anyway. Oh, I have a strong sense of loyalty to them. If I have the opportunity to buy from them, I will. Um, Actually, so I I came in on the beach one day and I sat down and I was taking one of my fins off and I set it down to take the other one off. And I learned how quickly a wave can pick up your fin and just carry it into nothingness. (laughs) And I immediately, like, I swam around for like an hour looking for this stupid glass fin. And I went up to Blue Tuna afterward and I sat down with Matt and I was like, okay, so I really like these glass fins. And he was like, well, actually, this foot pocket's really floppy. Let me show you how a foot pocket should work. And he pulled one out. And he was like, also for your weight, this is way too stiff. They sold you too stiff of a fin. Like, I'm going to explain to you every single fin I have in the shop and why I carry them. And like, by the end of it, I was like, oh, the choice is obvious. I definitely want this one. And I'm all too happy to pay you for it. Like, and their prices were reasonable. There's something too about like, when noobs walk into a shop, sometimes they already think they know what they want to buy. And guys that have been going a little bit and they've had some background with equipment, they start to become aware of like, oh, this, I don't really like this because of this reason. And when you've had that little bit of experience, all of a sudden a salesperson in one of those shops can then educate you about something and you have a greater appreciation and understanding for what it is they're trying to sell you. Absolutely. Love it. Awesome, man. So shout out to the guys in Blue Blue Tuna and Ventura, was it? Yeah, yeah, Ventura, California. Those guys are amazing. All right, cool. Anything else in your gear bag you wanted to cover off? Not really. I don't think so. All right, My cool. gear's pretty straightforward. 99 Spare Recipes, guys. 
Uh, super exciting project aboard, available right now on kickstarter.com. Have a listen to what Jeremy in Tasmania had to say about 99 Spare Recipes. Hey Shrek, it's the Lost Sparrow Jez here down in Tasmania. Uh, recipe book was a brilliant idea. Uh, stoked to submit one myself. Although I think my photos leave a little to be desired. Uh, I'm looking forward to when this gets put out and I can grab myself a copy and start trying out some new ones over the campfires around this wee island. Good stuff. Thanks, Jeremy. If you want to check out 99 Spare Recipes, go to noobsparrow.com forward slash 99 recipes or go to Kickstarter Direct and type in 99 Spare Recipes. Let's get back into this interview with Spencer Allen. Cool, man. All right, let's get into Spiro Q&A. It's our faster-paced round of questions. Could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence? I'm so bad at brevity. Um, <laughs> I would say better understanding myself by better understanding the ocean. Yeah, I'd say that. All right, cool. Who has been the most influential personal people in your spearfishing? Uh, well, definitely like, like I said, like Noob Spiro has been such an interesting, like something to kind of keep me company when I'm driving to and from the coast, like the number of amazing people, like getting to listen to like Rob Allen and Chris Coates and like all these dudes who are like, oh yeah, I remember when I blacked out at 30 meters and like (laughs) had to get rescued. And this is what I learned from it. Like those stories are so invaluable. Like I gotta say, this show has been such an amazing resource in that regard. Oh, thanks, Spence. Um, if you had to start all over again, what would you do differently? I think I would probably, I, I, it happened pretty quick for me, but I definitely think it would be a little bit more of a focus on just like knowing that there's a whole lot of ways to go with it and that there's not a wrong way. Okay. Who's the best best person to go spearfishing with and why? Oh, right now, my buddy Mike. Um, he's fantastic. He was also like a professional chef. Um, so I always feel weird, like making YouTube videos about cooking when I'm like, Oh God, this guy was actually paid to do this shit, (laughs) (laughs) but he's a really cool guy. He's super reliable. Um, I can get into the cerebral stuff about spearfishing with him. He'll show up at four 30 in the morning. Um, you know, I, I, I've got a lot of, uh, trust and, uh, we've had a lot of fun. Sick. All right. Last question. And then I've got an extra one for you. That's not on the list. Um, what is the what what is your dream spearfishing destination? If you could go anywhere in the world for Ooh. a week and spear whatever you wanted, where, where would you go? I don't know how sharky it is, but I've watched a lot of fishing in Panama, uh, like specifically Cambutal, where like those guys are they're catching Kubera snapper and there's tuna coming through and there's rooster fish, like. I kind of would imagine a place with a lot of biodiversity. There's a lot of really good stuff in Baja. Um, I've yet to explore a lot of both the Pacific and the uh, inland side of Mexico, but I think it's places that are going to be like that for sure. Mm, cool. Yeah, like where you get to just see massive workups and David Attenborough moments. Yeah. Cool. Um, my last bonus question for you was, what do you do or how do you combat imposter syndrome? I think I surround myself with people that I trust. Um, this is kind of like, I don't know, uh, a little like, uh, say like guidance counselor. That's not the right word, but I, I would dare say, um, sounding boards, trusted sounding boards. It's having somebody that I can turn to and say, like, I feel like this, I'm a little worried about that and just say it out loud and have somebody go, Oh yeah, I get that. 
and not even like have them fix it for me or anything, but just be like, oh yeah, I said that. And now it doesn't feel as big of a deal. Like, I think that's what it is for me is having people around that I trust. Love it, man. That's awesome. Thanks, Spencer. It was, uh, it was a big question to throw out at the back end. But, um, man, awesome. I, I love following along on your journey. I love the intermittent email contact. I love the fact that you have submitted some awesome content for um, 99 Spirit Recipes, uh, which will be on Kickstarter uh, probably like three days after this interview goes live. So um, if people want to search up 99 Spare Recipes, they can get hold of some of Spencer's recipes. Spencer, you're also on YouTube. You call yourself ADH uh, Delicious. But ADH Delicious. I like it. <laughs> but your YouTube channel is just Spencer Allen. Um, L Spencerino on Instagram. If people want to come to today's show notes at noobspero.com forward slash Spence. S-P-E-N-C-E. I will have uh, all his socials linked up in there and this marvellous YouTube channel that is uh, underfollowed as far as I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, and I think I think hopefully people will get on there, Spence, because you're doing some really cool stuff on there. I hope you can continue with um, posting between that and your busy life. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I've actually been meaning to get back to it sometime soon. It's uh, it's definitely on my list. It's hard, man. It's a hard one to do. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for coming on the show. And um, yeah, any parting advice for the spearing world, spearing community? Um, just throwing, I don't know. Just throwing. I think I just go back to the same thing I've been talking about this whole hour. Is like just go out there and have fun and try not to. Uh, I don't know. Uh, try a bunch of stuff out. Like experimenting in this sport is what makes it so much fun. There's so many different ways you can go with it and deconstruct it. Like that's my favorite part about it so far. Cool. All right. Thanks, Spence. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Spencer and, and you found it thought-provoking. I'd really encourage you to check out his YouTube channel. It's ADH Delicious. Or if you just type in Spencer Allen or you come to today's show notes at uh, noobspirit.com forward slash Spencer, S-P-E-N-C-E-R. I will link up his social media and his YouTube channel. Really cool dude doing really cool things and I'm stoked he got involved in 99 Spirit Recipes. If you want to get yourself a copy, I would encourage you to do so, especially now in the early days. There's a couple of really cool pledge reward levels um, that are quite limited. Check it out at noobspirit.com forward slash 99 recipes or go direct to Kickstarter and type in 99 Spirit Recipes. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Hey, we're Brit Sport. Next week we're coming back in, in less than seven days to chat with Daniel Mann. I haven't caught up with Dan for a while and I really enjoyed getting into his brain, picking his brain with some of the cooking techniques because he's a really um, thoughtful dude, just like Spencer actually. And uh, we get into the nuts and bolts of real guns right at the start of this episode based on a listener query. Um, see you in a week. Uh, if you love the show as usual, consider becoming a patron listener at patreon.com forward slash noobspero. Join Northern, uh, nearly 50 patron legends supporting the show on an episode by episode basis and yeah get yourself a copy of 99 spirit recipes i'm out manscaped is the best and below the waist grooming designed in fact for groin grooming no more awkward moments with pubes hanging out the side of your budgie smoke love Anyway, get 20% off and free shipping with the code NoobSpiro. 
One word, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code NOOBSPIRA. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will thank you and so will the girls that have to look at you in a pair of budgie smugglers. This offer is a literal no-brainer if you're a Spiro in Australia. Go to adreno.com.au if you buy or spend over $200, you can use the code NoobSpiro to save $20 on every purchase over $200. Hook in, my friends, at adreno.com.au. Take advantage of a massive range of equipment. They've got flat rate shipping across Australia, hassle-free returns policy, and a price beat guarantee on any Australian spearfishing equipment price. Check them out at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpiro to save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can use that in-store or online at adreno.com.au. The Noob Zero Podcast is incredibly proud to be partnering with Neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on. It's the very best in spearing gear from around the planet. Neptonics is also the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing gear, particularly in the US. They've got free shipping on all orders over $99 in the US. Furthermore, you can use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off on your entire shopping basket at neptonics.com. Use the code NOOBSPIRIT at neptonics.com. Mm-hmm.